This is the O'Reilly Programming Podcast. I'm Jeff Blyle. Our guest today is Matt Stein. He is Global CTO of Architecture at Pivotal. He's presenting the O'Reilly Live Online Training Course, Cloud Native Architecture Patterns, on November 8th and 9th. You can find out more about that by going to Safari, O'Reilly's technology and business learning platform. Matt also recently presented the training course, Cloud Native Architecture Fundamentals, and he spoke at last month's O'Reilly Security Conference on why Cloud Native Enterprise Security matters, and he is also the presenter of a series of videos on Cloud Native Architecture. We'll talk with Matt about Cloud Native Architecture patterns and pattern languages, six key architecture qualities, three principles of Cloud Native Security, and a lot more. Enjoy the show. Hi, Matt. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jeff. Glad to be here. At the beginning of your talk at the Software Architecture Conference earlier this year, you asked the audience to, to do an experiment in which they came up with definitions for some select terms and then checked to see if others defined those terms in the same way. The point being that even terms as basic as the cloud or microservices probably did not have a, a commonly shared definition. Was was that more or less how it played out? Yeah, that seems to be how it played out in folks' experience, and that's how it plays out when I have conversations about those terms. So I, I didn't pick those randomly out of the air. These were terms that I knew turn out to be problematic when I have conversations with my clients, and we're just trying to get to a basic foundational understanding of how we view the world before we start trying to solve difficult problems. And very often, we'll end up spending half an hour just trying to come to a basic understanding of things like, well, today everybody wants to define what a microservice is. And uh, there are probably you know, 20, 30 conflicting definitions floating around right now. And if we can't even agree on what we're talking about, trying to build some complicated software stack on top of a really poor shared understanding, well, it's kind of obvious where that's going to end up. So what is the first step in creating a shared understanding of some of these core architectural terms? Well, I think there's a couple of things that I've found useful. Um, one of those is just to identify that a lack of shared understanding exists, which is kind of what I was trying to point at with that exercise. But then to make it known that it's absolutely okay that that shared understanding isn't there yet and that we have these different views of the world because a lot of times those views of the world turn out to be important and there are different shades of nuance that every person is capturing. Usually it's something that they feel like is important to their area of the domain or area of the technical stack and they're just trying to bring that value. But necessarily we are biased also by the area from which we view the problem. And so um, what we're trying to do is get all those biases out on the table and break down what exists. And then at least we have now a target to have a conversation about. Now, the other thing that I find really interesting is we will come up with kind of a definition for something that's very valuable in an organization's context the way we think about a particular business process or a service or some other thing that is you know, key to the work we're trying to do. And the difficulty that I see is that we'll try to map that back to a word that we've heard before. So again, coming back to microservice as a term, we'll define this thing that we feel like is very important. And we'll say, 
that's what a microservice is for us. But then when you compare kind of the popular definitions of that term that are floating around the industry, on the internet, blogs, articles, conference talks, and then you compare it to their internal understanding of that term, they actually don't match up. When does this become a problem? Well, I work with primarily your global 100 size organizations where kind of the low ball number of developers that we're working with, say 10,000, will get as high as 30,000 developers maybe inside of a single company. If those 30,000 people all go out and read a different blog entry that explains to them what a microservice is, and then they're told, no, a microservice means that, well, basically, we're all going to be confused. And again, it's that confusion that leads to a lot of the other problems that we run into when we start trying to build complicated systems. And, and we mentioned at the outset of the episode that you've got a training course coming up next week on cloud-native architecture patterns. And your presentation next February at the Software Architecture Conference is about applying cloud architecture patterns. One of the things you talk about is how patterns can make sense of an ongoing paradigm shift in software architecture. Can you talk more about the nature of that paradigm shift? And is it actually still ongoing? The paradigm shift is is definitely ongoing. It's it's progressing quite rapidly right now. Um, just to add some context to that, I had a conversation with a client just a couple of hours ago, and the whole goal was: here's our view of where we want to go with our what we're calling our cloud native approach to architecture, and we want to get your opinion of it. And I walk into these meetings with a set of questions that I always ask because they usually will point to the things that I already know are going to go wrong. Um, I walk in, I have my own biases just based on experience. And I walk in and I ask these questions. And as it turns out, um, this particular team had a much more mature understanding of the types of techniques and language that we want to use to be successful in these kind of re-platforming, re-architecture efforts than I've really seen, I'll be a little bit hyperbolic, I'll say, than I've ever seen before. Um, it was actually quite refreshing. So what that points to me is that as a whole, the industry is learning quite rapidly that this design thinking and this language thinking is really important. What we're doing from a paradigm shift perspective, in my mind, is we're taking a much more holistic view of this um, this game of software engineering and product management and, um, and and life cycle, whether we think of that from a DevOps language and conversation perspective or continuous delivery. Um, there's a lot of different groups of people that have formed, we'll call them, say, tribes. And these tribes have developed their own ways of talking about really what turn out to be the same things. And in, in my mind, um, maybe they're taking a development-centric approach to it or a operations perspective or operation-centric view of it, but they tend to be using different words to describe the same things. What is the, the thing that we're describing? You know, How do we get to this idea of optimizing this value stream of, of concept to cash was how Mary and Tom Poppendick described it when they were talking about lean software development. And um, somebody has an idea that they think is going to you know, essentially make us some money in the marketplace. And on the other end of that stream is, well, we're actually making that money. Or we learned that, no, that was actually a bad idea. 
Um, in either case, whether it's a good idea, it's going to make us some money or a bad idea. Yeah, we shouldn't be working on it. If we can somehow shrink the distance between those two points so that we learn good or we learn bad more quickly, more cheaply, um, and we get to the point where that's happening continuously, that's the ultimate goal. And what all of these different conversations, whether it's DevOps or continuous delivery or microservices or cloud native, they're all kind of different facets of that same conversation. But those are really big, complicated ideas. Coming back to your original question, which was about patterns and how patterns relate to this big paradigm shift, the importance for me, again, is how do we create that shared understanding at large scale within an organization that is, in, in many cases, global? So, again, thousands, tens of thousands of developers and in, uh, engineers, testers, product managers, operations personnel, all of these people making sure that they have a shared understanding. Patterns give us basically a little atomic chunks of here's a context, here's a problem that shows up in that context, and here's a solution that seems to work well given that context and problem. It gives us kind of some, some anchors to hold on to to say, okay, if I can understand this set of patterns and learn how to apply them, then that will help me to make the problem a little bit more manageable because I can break it down into little chunks that we can have a shared understanding of. Yeah, and is that where an architecture pattern language comes in? Well, right, um, exactly. Um, the, the idea of a pattern language that Christopher Alexander and, and his colleagues, that they kind of coined that term in, in the book by the same name. Of course, they were talking about buildings and towns and, uh, you know, at, at going into larger scale, coming down to, you know, the smaller scale of, you know, where should the window be placed in the room or um, how should the doorknob be positioned within the door? You've got small scale patterns, you've got large scale patterns, and there is a very definite relationship between them. They influence one another, they support one another. Um, if you apply one pattern, that pattern might give you some benefits, but at the same time cause other different problems as part of its application. And the way that they described how this works is within the context, you don't just have one problem, you actually have this system of, of opposing forces. Um, you've got some good things that are happening and they're applying force in various directions. You've got some bad things that are happening. They're applying other forces in different directions. And the purpose of this of this family of patterns is to somehow bring that context back into balance, which means that you probably can't have just one. You probably need to have maybe two or three that you apply simultaneously. And the right two or three is determined by their relationship um, within that language. It's just like when we're talking, you know, we're, we're, we're speaking in English right now, and I could just start saying random English words, and I wouldn't be communicating anything. Um, there are patterns for how words are combined into language that makes sense to other people who speak that language. And then there are patterns that show up over and over and over again 
those are the things that we end up calling idioms, right? Um, so these, uh, so so the idea of idiom doesn't exist just in spoken language. It shows up in the software and architectural pattern languages as well. You emphasize in some of your presentations the cloud-native architectural pattern language called brick-and-mortar. Um, can you describe that and talk about why you chose to kind of focus on this particular pattern template? Yeah, sure. Um, well, an obvious reason is that I created it. Um, okay. <laughs> so um, one of the things that I do, I think this is one of the ways that I provide value in this industry, is that I like to pattern match. I look at what a lot of smart, successful people in the industry are doing, and I try to determine, well, what about these people and their work and their successes is the same? And there are a lot of different ideas floating around about how to approach architecture, um, we'll say in the cloud, sidebar. I talk about cloud-native architecture as having, in many ways, very little to do with a place called the cloud. Okay. And much more of a how we go about the approach of building software. And I think in many ways, it was more of a marketing designation that we called this stuff cloud-native. We could have easily have called it DevOps-native or continuous delivery-native or any of those things, and it would have not fundamentally changed, I think, the activities and the patterns that we're talking about. Now, some of the things that we talk about are indeed related to infrastructure that I would label as cloud. And when I label infrastructure as cloud, I say, well, basically what you have is a place where I can provision and release in an elastic way computing resources, storage resources, networking resources. And I can do that in a very on-demand, self-service way. So this is what clouds like Amazon or Google or, or Microsoft Azure look like. This is what PaaS platforms like Cloud Foundry and Heroku look like. This is what container platforms like Kubernetes, for example, look like. There's a lot of different incarnations of that. And so there are certain ways that you can build software that take advantage of the characteristics of those platforms. And you can also build software in such a way that you waste the characteristics of those platforms. It's, it's actually possible to go get this wonderful sounding thing called cloud and, and make your life worse in the way that you, uh, that you develop the software. So coming back to brick and mortar, the idea there was for me to look at um, a lot of these um, conversations that are ongoing, and I wanted to synthesize that down into a very kind of small bite-sized chunks um, of things that make sense. And and if you and if you take these chunks and you adopt them as a family, you're probably going to get the best of what's out there in the conversation right now architecturally. So things like borrowing from the 12-factor app conversation that is ongoing. You go look at 12-factor, it's obvious its lineage is from Heroku. There are a lot of platforms that have adopted either subsets or supersets of that mindset in their own way. So Cloud Foundry has some 12-factor things about it. 
Kubernetes has some 12 factor things about it. Um, the Docker ecosystem has some 12 factor things about it, but none of them are just full fledged implementations of those principles. So what I looked at was, okay, well, what are the parts of 12 factor that they seem to be emphasizing things like externalized configuration, externalized state. And I encapsulated those in patterns that took the essence of what was being described and implemented and separated it from anyone's particular description of that, except for me. It's, it's obviously my description of that. So kind of synthesizing that into a pattern language. And one of the things that I, I like to think of is from a modularity perspective in software, uh, we've kind of always had this dream that we could create software components that are kind of like Lego bricks and that we could just grab the right Lego bricks and assemble a piece of software from them. And, um, and then when we want to build something different, you know, just like you can take a bunch of Lego kits that are intended to build specific things and you can dump all those bricks in a bucket and then just pour whatever random bricks you want out of the bucket and build whatever you want. Why? Because there's this really ingenious standardized integration mechanism for those bricks, meaning that I can take any bricks that I want from really any time period since the inception of that Lego building system. So bricks that were um, produced in the 1960s, I can still combine with bricks that were produced, you know, in 2017. And you, you look at, you go back to software and you think, gosh, wow, could I take software that was written in 1960 and easily combine it with software that was written in 2017, that sounds like a very radical proposition. But if I could do that, if I could build software components like that, it would be like I have, you know, I have these bricks and the bricks represent kind of my generic connotation of what a lot of people are calling microservices today. And then the mortar, which of course you don't really use mortar in, um, in Legos unless you're, uh, you know, gluing things together like on that movie. But, you know, to kind of to point at the standard patterns that we use to integrate these things like service discovery and edge gateway patterns and fault tolerance patterns. There are a handful of very standard mechanisms that show up over and over again in different language communities and different platform runtime communities. And so kind of describing that standard mechanism as mortar. So now I've got the bricks that show me how to build the services, and I've got the mortar that shows me how to integrate the services. Um, if I get those things right, and um, and all of those are geared toward these architectural qualities that we want to enable us to practice kind of a DevOps culture and continuous delivery engineering practices and using cloud infrastructure, that's the goal, is kind of make that software enable and exploit those characteristics rather than the opposite. One more uh, pattern-related question before moving on to some cloud-native things. I got to ask you about something you tweeted earlier this year. Okay. Uh, that bounded context may be the most dangerous concept in enterprise software today. Bounded context is a pattern, right? Um, it's a pattern in a different in a different language, we'll say, than, oh, okay. than, than what we're talking about right now. So. Um, why did you say it was dangerous? Well, it's interesting, and this is this is even relevant to uh, you know the conversation that I that I had earlier today. Bounded context is one of those terms that's floating around in the industry right now and is being 
co-opted to mean a lot of different things. When Eric Evans wrote his book in 2003, Domain Driven Design, and he coined this term, he had a very specific definition in mind. It was pointing to a very specific thing that he thought was important. And um, happy to quickly define that just to give context. This was not the most important term for him in the book. He waited until I believe it was chapter 14 to start talking about it. So what did he what did he begin the book with? It was this idea of ubiquitous language, which I think we've been talking about language quite a bit in the conversation so far. A ubiquitous language is a fancy term for if we're having a conversation and I use a term and then you were to use that same term, we actually mean the same thing. Very simple foundational concept. Turns out to be very important, especially when one of those people is a business user who has asked for some software to be built and the other person is an engineer who's responsible for building that software. And if they're using that same term, you want them to kind of agree on what it means. Otherwise, the software that gets built is probably not going to be what the business user needs. Now, uh, what Evans kind of conjectured was, based on his experience, you get a large enough organization with a complicated enough domain getting a ubiquitous language that actually spans that entire organization and its domain is actually not possible. Uh, just partly because you have so many human beings involved that have different views. And as it turns out, those views in many cases are valuable. Um, everybody has kind of an intuitive understanding of the way they do their work. And they're going to have common terms that pop up all over the organization. You know, basic things like a customer. You would think we could agree on what a customer is. And every time I say that sentence, you know, all the people in the room, you know, they kind of laugh because they know that we don't actually agree on what a customer is. Um, I think it's this. You think it's that. And really, all of the views are simultaneously correct, um, but also incorrect. And so our gut instinct is, well, let's try to rationalize that all into one single definition. And when we do that, that definition, you know, really satisfies no one. And it creates a lot of problems. So coming back to bounded context, what Evans did say was, well, you can't do that for the entire organization. But if you can look at certain areas of the domain, and if you draw a circle around that area, if you stand inside the circle, you do have a ubiquitous language. You walk outside the circle, it's kind of undefined. But you stand inside the circle, hey, look, the language all makes sense. We all agree. So as long as we're in the circle, we're safe. So we're going to build a boundary around that um, area. We're going to call it a bounded context. And that boundary, um, he kind of likened to a cell membrane. And a cell membrane does what in a cell? It, uh, it regulates what goes in and what comes out. And so we're going to build a similar boundary around these domain concepts so that we can control what influences that language. So this stuff was great and provided value to a lot of people. But honestly, at least from my perspective, looking at the industry, didn't fundamentally change the way we did our work until we got into this whole microservices world. The reason for that is that once we started dividing up these monolithic systems into microservices and creating distributed systems, the boundaries that we were creating became a lot more rigid and obvious. And if we got them wrong, it was quite problematic. Whereas if we got them wrong inside of a monolith, either A, we didn't care that much, 
because our IDEs could enable us to call whatever code we needed to call, which, of course, rapidly led to these big balls of mud that we ended up creating. Or if we did know, we could use refactoring tools really easily to, to, to tidy things up. It's a lot harder to do that when you've got now several code bases floating around, maybe even written in different languages. So we're looking for tools to help us think more robustly about design. And a lot of people simultaneously kind of happened upon domain-driven design as that toolbox that is going to help us to do that. And bounded context opt out um, of that as, hey, here's a tool that can help us think about how to decompose this problem space into um, useful, say, module boundaries. Anyway, coming back to why this is dangerous, there are a lot of people using the term, but not consistent with the original definition. What they're doing is they're saying, hey, here's this boundary that I'm going to draw that makes sense to me, and I'm going to call that a bounded context. Uh, and what they're really doing is they're coming up with a decomposition strategy. And decomposition strategies are incredibly important. I talk about them a lot. Um, but they're coming up with something that's intuitive to them. And then they're taking an industry term and they're applying it to that strategy that they've created. And, and again, why is that dangerous? Because we're taking something that has meaning and we're giving it a completely different meaning, maybe an inconsistent meaning, and that can help to damage the shared understanding we have uh, across the organization. Um, and ultimately, if you're not using the original definition for, for a bounded context, you're actually not getting any value out of that tool. That tool is defined the way it is to give you value, to help you establish those ubiquitous languages and the appropriate boundaries to protect them. If you're taking the term without any of the definition, then you don't have that tool in your toolbox anymore. Sure. Well, let me move on to a couple of questions about cloud-native architecture, the topic of a series of videos that you present. To kind of lead us into more discussion on this, first, what are, what are some of the business reasons that companies are embracing cloud-native now? I think there are two um, really obvious things to point at there. The first I'll call business agility. And that's really that thing that we've already touched on, which is optimizing that concept to cash lifecycle and being able to, as a business, be very responsive to changes in the market or even be driving some of those changes in the market by responding to feedback in that life cycle. So concept to cash might mean something very specific right now. And we decide, well, now we want it to mean something different, or maybe we want it to mean something additional to what we're already doing. We're going to keep our core business operating, but we're going to go innovate over in this area. And so adopting software architecture that enables us to do that is is one clear thing. Mm -hmm. The other primary driver is what I'll call system resiliency. As we go faster, that is a very natural source of tension against the way large-scale software engineering information technology has kind of behaved over uh, at least as long as I've been doing this. And um, we've kind of had this general approach of mistake prevention. We will you know, add more testing, more release engineering, more code reviews, more sign-offs and approvals, 
And um, if we if we get enough process in place with enough checkpoints, then we might get to this point where we can deliver perfect software. You know, software that has no bugs in it. It's never going to go down. It's always going to scale appropriately. It's never going to have any security vulnerabilities. And um, of course, we know that's a myth, but um, it's one thing to say it's a myth. It's another thing to behave as if it's a myth. And um, what you see is a lot of these companies that have been very successful at the business agility side of things have also had a radically different approach to the resiliency or reliability or robustness um, side of things. And that is basically they stopped trying to prevent mistakes and instead tried to find a way to embrace mistakes, embrace failures, learn from those mistakes, learn from those failures, and um, and really build systems that are tolerant of that type of environment. So you know, I'll build software components that obviously are going to talk to other software components. And the assumption is, well, at any point in time, one or more of the things that I need to do my job are, are going to be unhealthy or unreachable. And rather than just kind of throwing my hands up and not working, I'm actually going to respond in some useful way. And um, we talk about self-healing systems. We talk about anti-fragile systems. These are all different ways of, of looking at that. Um, so these cloud-native architecture approaches, they are geared towards bringing those two things into an appropriate balance, making it such that we can, um, I like to say it this way, it's a turn of a phrase that was popularized by Facebook. They talked about moving fast and breaking things. And all of the engineers working in highly regulated environments kind of laughed out loud. And uh, you know, I say, okay, well, we, we want to go one better. We want to move fast and not break things. And, um, and, and that's what this is all about. You also highlight six key architecture qualities that really enable you to take advantage of cloud infrastructure. Can you give us a big picture overview of those qualities? And in particular, if there uh, might be one or two that maybe a lot of architects don't know all that much about. Yeah, sure. Um, going back to some of the things we've already been talking about, I've called out DevOps, I've called out continuous delivery, and I've called out cloud. And again, this was me attempting to simplify a bunch of ideas down to a handful of, of hooks that we could kind of hang ideas on. And so I had two for DevOps, I had two for continuous delivery, and I had two for cloud. And so in the DevOps space, I talked about modularity and observability. Why those two? Well, in the DevOps world, one of the interesting ways to talk about that is the three ways of DevOps that uh, I'd say Gene Kim is one of the primary people that I learned about this from, and, and he had several co-authors on the Phoenix Project, several co-authors on the DevOps Handbook that talked about these in different ways. In the Phoenix Project, it was a story, and in the DevOps Handbook, it was a more uh, academic slash how-to treatment of the ideas. Um, but the first two ways were flow and feedback. So when you think about flow, um, we're thinking about that you know continuous flow of value from dev to ops or business to customer, again, concept to cash, you can't flow really big things. You know, this is, this is why, again, I think we have this sort of punctuated equilibrium mindset in delivering software in the enterprise. Um, but if we can break that down, 
And again, if you look at a company like Amazon.com, they claim to deliver software every second. Well, they're not delivering all of Amazon.com every second. They're delivering some useful atomic piece, or maybe even uh, my my friend Andrew Clay Schaefer called this a quantum of, of delivery. Finding that quantum that helps me to flow, that's the modularity quality. We want architectures that provide those useful quanta. And then the observability piece is, well, how do we build feedback into that system to know that, hey, all of these things that we're flowing, that they're actually either providing value or the opposite. So again, it's a continual learning process. We build a small thing, and either that small thing moves us in a good direction or it moves us in a bad direction. Without observability, we can't answer that question. So we want the architecture to give us both. So that's a cultural thing. There's also kind of a, well, we have to implement the pipeline that enables that to happen. You can't really continuously flow something through manual work. If you can have a piece of software whose job is to implement that flow, and we call these things primarily continuous delivery pipelines, it's one thing to go implement that pipeline. But if the software that you build is resistant to being delivered in that way, and there's a lot of different ways that it can be resistant. So uh, we talk about an architecture being deployable or testable as two other qualities. Now, if it's, if it's difficult for me to deploy the software, it's going to be difficult for me to automate deployment of that software, clearly. And if it's difficult for me to test the software, then it's going to be difficult for me to automate the testing of that software. So both of those things are friction points against continuous delivery if we don't do them well. And then you go look at the cloud. The cloud enables me to self-service operation and to do things very quickly and to do things very elastically. You know, one of the original metaphors, it's a little bit problematic, but people understand it, was the idea of cattle versus pets. You know, we talk about, you know, we take care of our pets, we love on our pets, we take our pets to the vet, all of these things. But, you know, when cat, when livestock gets sick, it tends to have a very short lifespan and we just go get more livestock. And again, problematic metaphor, but people relate to it. The idea being that to move you know, be able to deploy things and release things, to scale things up and to scale things down quickly, very much implies this nature of disposability. You know, and and the and these are probably the two that, again, most architects and you ask which ones are they going to have trouble relating to. The first four, um, I think people are going to be like, yeah, okay, I, I get that. These two. So you want me to design software that is intended to be thrown away, and uh, I say yes. Because um, software that is special, that has a long lifespan, again, is, is friction against this idea of, um, okay, I'm going to toss that in the garbage and replace it with something else. And that's the other quality, replaceability. You know, I'd like to be able to, again, go back to the idea of the Lego bricks. If I have, you know, a six-top brick, kind of your basic Lego brick, and I have one that's blue and I have one that is red. Colors are different, you know, they have slightly different natures. But at the end of the day, if I'm building something that calls for a six-top brick, either one of those bricks are going to suffice equally well. Um, you could say they implement the same API. They just have slightly different behavior behind the scenes. So for us to create these 
very dynamic and malleable architectures. We want to do things like there's a you know the idea of A/B testing. I want to be able to target 50% of my users at one set of behavior and 50% of my users at a different set of behavior. Um, same API, but different experience or different logic behind it. And I want to run that test. Very difficult for me to run that test if the A side is fundamentally different in how I integrate with it from my B side. Um, I would say they're not replaceable with one another. I think about elastic scaling in the cloud. I have uh, a spike in demand. Let's say it's Black Friday, and I need to scale up my services to support online purchases. And so I go from, say, three instances of my purchasing service to 50 instances. It's a really good day. And um, so I add all this capacity. Well, in the old days, um, we add all that capacity. We're stuck with it forever. And it's going to go idle and it's not going to be useful. We're going to be burning money, um, keeping that stuff around. But in the cloud, I say, oh, I don't need that anymore. Just delete it. If I don't design software in such a way that that delete operation is benign, you know, if I'm carrying special state inside of those uh, services, um, whether it's session state or persistent state, writing things out to local disk. Again, these are a lot of the, you know, the anti 12 factor principles. Really what those principles were geared at was making those things disposable so that when we do that scale down operation and we throw away something like 47 instances of a service, the other three continue to operate as normal. The rest of the system doesn't really care that those services are gone. It's just that we have now reduced capacity to service demand, which is exactly what we wanted because demand itself has gone down. This is where a lot of that mindset change is happening in that we used to architect software with the understanding that we would build this thing. It would be robust. Um, it would be in place for long periods of time. We used to brag about the uptime of our servers. You know, my server's been up and running for 17 months with no failures. And um, we're, we're really looking at the opposite of that now. In fact, th there are ideas around security that, um, that are emerging. You know, at, uh, I guess when, when this goes out, I will have given a keynote at the O'Reilly Security Conference also. And I'm going to talk about this idea of the three R's of cloud native security. And they are repair, repave, and rotate. So repair being, you know, we, we have this collection of, of images of our software and we're continually discovering that they have new vulnerabilities in them. And so the software that we're, that we're, that we're operating has all these dependencies, libraries, and other things that it uses. Um, the vendors for those libraries will supply patches. And so as soon as those patches are published, we want to take those images and, and repair them so that the next time we deploy that image, it's a little bit stronger than it was before. But if I don't ever deploy those patched images, it doesn't, um, it doesn't really help. And so this notion of repave, continually replacing all of the running servers or containers or whatever my unit of deployment is with the last known good image, which we're continually repairing, means that we're continually replacing the running software with new, stronger running software. And in the process, you know, if we've had any um, malware, for example, gain entry to the system, well, that malware is now being systematically deleted every few hours or days. So it has less time to actually 
take hold and do damage inside the business. And then, you know, rotate was all about rotating credentials. We rarely actually rotate credentials. We create these passwords and we lock them up in a vault and we don't ever change them. But you keep a credential around long enough, invariably it's going to leak. And if it leaks to the wrong person, then they can do damage. So, so we're continually throwing those things away. Then um, even if I get my hands on one, maybe it's only valuable for a few minutes and I'm not fast enough. But inherent in all three of those R's, again, is this idea of disposability and replaceability. And when you do that, it has this interesting side effect that, again, instead of what we have done in IT is, well, slow and steady wins the race. It actually turns out now that fast is what wins the race because we're moving faster to also move safer. Well, Matt, we have uh, we've covered a lot of ground here. And thank you. If our listeners want to find out more about you and your activities, where should they go? So probably the easiest place to find out where I am and what I'm doing is on Twitter. So I probably frequent that space more than anything. Um, although I'll warn my any new followers that I pick up through this recording that I also use Twitter as a way of amusing myself. So I'll, I'll post some wacky things there as well. But I'm M. Stein, M-S-T-I-N-E on Twitter. So um, that can be um, either informative or entertaining, depending on what you're looking for. My LinkedIn account, uh, which is Matt Stein, one one word, is uh, where I tend to keep it extremely professional. And there's also kind of a portfolio dumping ground of all of my videos, all of the YouTube uh, that's available of me speaking at conferences, all the blog posts, articles, interviews. I'll post this there um, when it goes live. That's my website, mattstein.com. Well, Matt Stein, thank you very much for talking with us. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Once again, you can find out more about our guest Matt Stein's online training course, Cloud Native Architecture Patterns, at Safari, O'Reilly's technology and business learning platform. Go to safaribooksonline.com. While there, you can also view Matt's series of videos on cloud native architecture, including designing cloud native architecture for continuous delivery and designing cloud native apps for DevOps. And Matt is also the host of the Software Architecture Radio podcast. You can find out more about that at softwarearchitecturerad.io, and we'll have links to all these items in the show notes that accompany this episode. If you like our podcast, please subscribe via iTunes, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or Stitcher so that you never miss an episode. For the O'Reilly Programming Podcast, I'm Jeff Blyle.